Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. It is so good to hear your voice. It's so good to hear your voice. I'm back home in rainy, cloudy Los Angeles after a while of of being being around, like just doing some traveling. And it feels so good to be home. It feels so good to be back into my routine. And it feels so good to be recording the podcast again. And I must say, I have been listening to the daily news reports and thank God for you. Like (laughs) it's been so great uh, to, to keep informed on everything that's going on through the daily news. So, you know, thanks for continuing to do that. Even though I know you were traveling and there were a few interruptions, but I mean, it's so great. Thanks so much. It definitely helped being on Atlantic time. Um, and I, too, was in rainy and cloudy uh, lands. I was in the rainy, cloudy lands of St. John, New Brunswick, which was such a riot. It was such a good time. And I was there because, you know, normally when I go to stuff, I'm brought in and I'm doing something and then I leave. I'm rarely able to participate in things. And in this case, I was not just a participant. I was actually the organizer. So I had to be there for, you know, seven days or something. And what a wonderful little city to spend time in, though. I mean, I can talk also about some of the <laughs> problems, like one of the few places in Canada that has privatized water, uh, privatized city water, and then the lack of access to the to the ocean <laughs> downtown. But it was really oh wonderful. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was really wonderful. And I, I don't even know how many, uh, I can't do shout outs. There's just too many people to shout out. But I want to shout out one uh, group in particular. I want to shout out the New Brunswick Media Co-op. And this is a group that throughout the pandemic, I had done a lot of work with related to COVID deaths, specifically like what I was able to figure out from New Brunswick, because this was a province that wasn't reporting the stuff very consistently. And so it was really, really cool to finally be able to actually see some people there, meet some people there. And, uh, and to everyone else, I mean, it's just like, I'm, I'm just still, I'm still vibrating from the energy of that, uh, of that conference. So yeah, it's great, but I missed you so much and I missed our conversations. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, you know, uh, one of the projects that I'm working on was recently announced this week so I can tell the listeners about one of the things that I've been working on. Uh, So CBC has just announced for their fall slate um, a show called Black Life. It is a show about um, uh, black history in Canada uh, that spans eight episodes and I've been working on, uh, I'm one of the executive producers on it, and I've been working on this for uh, the last three years. And so I'm really, really excited about it, that it's, uh, you know, it's going to be slated for the fall. And uh, yeah, so you can look out for that uh, coming up in, in a few months. Uh, it's been quite a whirlwind uh, making that happen. That is so amazing that it is out in the world because, of course, I get a little bit of special access to knowing what you're doing and what's going on in your world. And (laughs) I have been so excited to be able to, like, actually, like, share stuff and post stuff uh, when uh, when you have stuff to share and post. So I'm really looking forward to watching it. And I'll break my no TV rule. Uh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I will say like, uh, this short series, it's a, it's a limited series, um, is like a labor of so many different, um, talented people, uh, across Canada who've come together. There's like a different director for each episode. Um, it's just like really cool to have like a great, uh, black team for each, episode. It it really is like an opportunity to showcase 
uh, the talent, uh, black talent across Canada, in addition to talking about history and contemporary issues for uh, as much as we can, you know, in a a 44 minute um, episode, which is a CBC hour. So, you know, it just feels like we need more time. But it's Mm. uh, it's it's really, really great. It packs in a lot of information for what we have. So I'm really excited. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we have some people to thank. I mean, we haven't been on the air for a couple of weeks. So thanks to everybody uh, who missed us. <laughs> thanks for your patience. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, as Sandy said, uh, the daily news is a way that we're able to keep going, uh, even when Sandy Nora is not able to record. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to do that. Though I think that the hotel staff were like, what the hell is that lady doing in her closet? <laughs> they so um they so amazingly like kept on making my bed without the duvet and then leaving the duvet set up that I had made every morning to be able to record so shout out to the staff at the Delta Hotel in downtown St. John but Sandy we got some people to thank I'm so excited about this let's thank the people All right. So this week, thank you so, so, so much to everyone who talks about the podcast, shares the podcast, loves the podcast, and of course, makes the podcast financially possible. This week in particular, thank you to Jackie, Andrea, Chloe Brown for Toronto Mayor. Excellent use of the donations to get a shout out. Yeah, well done. That's organizing right there. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Thank you to M, Stephen, Matthias, Sharon... Riley, Calvin Monroe, Motley Jewelry and Art. Again, very clever. Rachel and Sheldon. And you know what? If I missed you, I missed you in the last couple of weeks, shoot me a little note. And I'll make sure that I get you, uh, get your name said because it's a little bit confusing because it's been so long. So there you go. Thank you so much. You are all amazing. You're all fantastic. And speaking of Toronto, I was in Toronto for a little bit last week, uh, which means, uh, you know, I got to enjoy the sunshine and so on. But Wow. <laughs> I could I could only like just imagine what it would be like if the two of us were in the city again uh, at the same time while a um a municipal election was going on, but I like it, I guess it's like really great that um 2000 people are running for mayor, but it also I feel like spells um a problem with organizing in the city. And uh, I, you know, like I just, it's just Mm -hmm. a little bit odd that there are that many people uh, running for mayor. And it just feels, uh, it feels so strange to see who is being chosen to be a part of the debates. Um, Also, like, and who is being left out, like, especially Chloe Brown, um, being left out of some of these debates uh, as someone who performed so well in the last mayoral election. But like, wow, Toronto, what, wow, what in the world is going (laughs) on? Yes. And so for the uninitiated, there are what, 102 people running for mayor and one dog, if I've got that right? I think that's correct. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. Of course, there's a lot of names that should be considered in like the top, I don't even know, five or 10 people that are consistently left out of that discussion. But there's another way as well to look at this very chaotic approach to an election, which is that there is 
civic activism. There are people that identify that there's a problem with the city of Toronto. There are people that want to get involved and there's no other way for them to get involved than to think that running for mayor makes the most sense. And that really makes me think of student union days, eh? Like when people would just run for president out of nowhere and think that that was the best way to get involved. And it was always one of these things where you would take someone aside who is, you know, comes from nowhere and runs for the president of the student union and say, look, like you're probably not going to win. How can we get you involved after in a way that actually allows you to accomplish the things that you were driven by to run for president in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like it's it's just so strange, especially because there was just a mayoral election um, mere months ago mm-hmm. that all of a sudden it, it feels like people are really interested in this snap election and running. When, you know, like what, what's really required is uh, is like consistent uh, organizing uh, against what has been really conservative uh, management of the city of Toronto uh, to like some some really catastrophic uh, results over um, the better part of the last decade. Um, so, I, you know, I, mm-hmm. yes, run for mayor. That's good. But uh, I mean, like the, what's happening on council with the council that's also important organizing with respect to the province itself which manages uh, the municipalities also incredibly important and all the parties are weak in that regard and all of the uh, organizations that should be pushing uh, the province that should be pushing uh, the, the, the city council are also weak and I say that um, knowing that that is applicable to other mm. provinces who may have also had a recent election. Was there something? I, I just felt like there's a really bad vibes coming from some part of Canada, but I didn't I didn't I didn't look for the source of the vibes. I mean, you may have thought that the vibes were related to um, the fires. Uh, yes. But it almost feels That's, like yes. the fires were a metaphor for something else that was going down. Um, and, you know, not to make light of those fires, because that, that is extremely tragic, what is happening across this country and the the failure of, of government to, uh, you know, make sure that we are prepared Uh, for what is happening more and more year after year, Uh, not just in Alberta, not just in the prairies, but also now, oh my God, on the East Coast, it's, Mm -hmm. it's fucking awful, but, and Quebec. Uh, But of course, we are referring to um, the Alberta election. Yeah, yeah. The Alberta election. I mean, on one hand, like, why in the hell would we talk about the Alberta election? Like, (laughs) uh, who cares? But on the other hand, it's very, very important (laughs) and everybody should care. Everybody should care. So we had a couple of folks saying, hey, when you're back, you have to talk about the Alberta election. And of course, I agree with you. We agree with you. We're doing it. There's a lot of stuff to talk about related to this election. And I think that maybe like we can talk about the very specific politics and the interplay between the blue wearing Notley and the blue wearing Danielle Smith and these two women going at it and the kind of the way that the the politic the political discussions were being had up into the election but now like the result is what pretty much everyone expected we can have a defeatist approach to looking at this we can have a well what did you expect approach to this but it is very very interesting what it signals like 
Sandy, do you think that Alberta is the canary in the tar pit? Or are they just totally separate from the rest of Canada? And while it'll influence what happens everywhere else, it won't have direct influences. Where are we at? Uh, I I don't think it's either of those things. <laughs> um, I I think nice. I think that the, <laughs> what has happened in Alberta is uh, the re- result of like really shrewd organizing from uh, people on the right, and uh, perhaps like it, there is like some revulsion in hearing me respond like refer to that as shrewd because in some ways it seems like a complete clusterfuck of like. <laughs> random bullshit being spewed. But I think that, you know, in this political era that we all live in, we have to understand that a clusterfuck of random shit being spewed does lead to electoral results. (laughs) So, So if, I mean, if you're paying attention and you see that that is something that is useful and that can, can bring someone to power, uh, then why would you not use that? And so what I what I'm seeing is a a left that is trying to to have this battle on a playing field that no longer exists, trying to win hearts and minds in a playing field in which they hope, I suppose, that everyone is playing by the rules and just by by trying to say the things it's like, like, this is good policy over here. But while also being um, really, if we're talking about the NDP, being really careful to, to be like, oh, we have to appeal to both sides. So we're not going to, to necessarily do all of the things that would be left wing. We're just going to try to be as centrist as possible so we can appeal to both sides, blah, blah, blah. You know, boring, regular politics. Whereas the other side is like, hmm, we don't necessarily have anything that people will actually be interested in. Like, yeah, oil, like supporting the industry, but it's like people don't support um, the industry of oil. At least I believe that people don't support the, the oil industry because they like love oil. They support the oil industry because they, they want to work. And so, <laughs> you know, if you're speaking to um, uh, people's jobs and making sure that they have consistent income or whatever. Of course, they're the, like that's something that speaks to people. But besides, besides that, um, they don't really have much, and so they're playing on an entirely they're playing an entirely different game. And the game that they're playing is to talk about shit that generally um, is is more cultural to have the culture wars. Um, on top of uh, the political apparatus so that when they get in, they can do whatever they want in terms of making sure that the the wealthy corporations are kept happy in the province and to to implement all of the, the more conservative policies that they can implement that makes a certain sector business, very, very wealthy people happy in the province. But otherwise, you know, like they're not talking in the elections about things that are going to deeply impact people on the ground, like policy. And so we have this disconnect of like um, people who are, um, whether they're in uh, organizations or uh, a part of the NDP, people who are on the left to the center uh, talking about politics in a really you know, real, realistic, sort of like here are the policy sort of way. And people on the other side being like, 
you know, like, who are you and who do you want to be? And I'm going to appeal um, to your sense of self and your morality and hope that you make a decision on that basis so that I can put in all of the policies that I'm not going to talk about because they won't be popular with you. Right. Yeah, it's so it's interesting because it makes me think a lot about that disconnect between like the idea that all you need is a convincing argument and then how much work on the left we put into making convincing arguments as if we've just never had like the master argument to change everybody's mind. Right. Like there's a lot of important research that happens and research is, is great. And I certainly rely on excellent left wing research. But, you know, to say to someone like. Well, we don't want to privatize this stuff because it's going to make your service worse. That's true. And we can demonstrate that in a hundred different ways. But as you say, when, you, when you're fighting an enemy that taps into the culture and the feeling of things, facts don't matter at all. And the conservatives have figured this out in a very, uh, in a very sophisticated way. And when I asked if, if, if Alberta is the canary in the coal mine or in the tar pits or whatever, uh, I think that what, what I mean by that is they're, they're much more advanced on this culture war plane than in the rest of Canada. And I think that Alberta, more than anything for the Conservative Party, is really testing things and going really hard. And Alberta always has been out ahead of the rest of Canada as as ground zero and testing the worst of the worst. And so I'm thinking of like in the 1980s when the oil crisis tanked the economy of Alberta and the government had two options. I mean, not really, but they could have invested in people and invested in, in people who lost their jobs or who were paying too much money because of the of the of the collapse of the of oil prices and, you know, and global forces shooting up the pump prices, or they could have put money into the corporations themselves and helped to float these corporations to be able to stabilize. And and obviously, they ran towards sending money to the corporations and in so doing started to defund the state, right? Defunding the public state, the public uh, safety net, everything to give money to corporate the corporate world to maintain corporate stability. And in, in so doing, maintain social stability because so much of society is wrapped up with the corporate world. So that's neoliberalism. And that came to Canada first in, in like a concrete way. Of course, ideas were bandied about and there was there was certain neoliberal aspects of, of other governments and including, you know, the government of Pierre Trudeau, um, but le- lesser because <laughs> he was also still dancing between that post-war period of the, of the welfare state. But Alberta is where it emerges first. And that approach to, you know, who do we really care about here? Is it the corporations or is it the people? That needed a sophisticated culture, na- cultural narrative to convince someone that, yes, it's actually in my personal best interest to send all this money to these oil companies to make sure that they survive. And then, of course, we see that replicated over and over and over when we have to bail out the banks during the financial crisis, where we have to bail out the, the auto industry during the financial crisis, where right now we've got Volkswagen being given $13 billion in public dollars to set up an electric vehicle plant, uh, sorry, an electric vehicle battery making plant, and then Stellantis being like, what the hell, what about us? And now they are looking to probably being given $13 billion. And the only narratives, because the culture war has been won, is... Well, what what other option do we have? This is this is it. Like they're just not going to operate here. Like there's this is the only option, as if that's true. As if there is no alternative. As you know, Margaret Thatcher so um, easily 
uh, made popular in her in her speech speeches in her discourse. And so here we are. Daniel Smith um, walks into the election with a rock bottom support in a majority of conservative ridings, meaning that you're not going to change anybody's mind to vote for the NDP in these places in a, in the, over the course of an election campaign. That's going to take a lot deeper levels of organizing to try and change people's minds. And yet we've got two two parties that are absolutely beholden to that market logic that then makes it impossible for the NDP to play the uh, their own version of this culture war on their own terms because the terms are absolutely contradictory to what their policies actually are, you know? And so that's the disconnect. And, and how do we get out of that level of, 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 of dissonance between um, the, the, the ideology that drives the policy, a policy that kind of dr- is driven by the ideology, but also tries to dance in a world where the NDP is much more, more comfortable having a cultural war over issues of fairness and uh, income inequality or whatever, like what we would, what we would normally assign to being NDP values. You can cannot do it. You cannot do it. Average people can say this doesn't work. This feels awkward. You feel not authentic. You feel like you're tying yourself in knots. And so what you get is is people saying, okay, well, I mean, they're my only hope. I'm going to vote NDP. I don't like it, but whatever. Maybe you have some conservatives saying, well, you know, uh, Rachel Notley wasn't using horse dewormer during the pandemic, so maybe I'll vote for her because she seems more reasonable. But that is not enough to beat the juggernaut of the of the conservative machine in all of their ideological culture war and economic policies. It's just you can't. It's it's the. It, I mean, I guess everything is reduced to sucking and blowing. You literally cannot do it at the same time. Yeah, there. I mean, I, I like it's it just it feels like. Gosh, you, like you have to inspire people. You have to inspire people. And you can't inspire people by trying to be all things to all people or trying to be too careful on one side and, and, uh, and, and, but uh, telling everybody else, just, just trust me, just believe me. Like once I get in, I'm going to be different. <laughs> like it's not, it's not possible to inspire people in that way. You kind of, you have to take, um, what I, I like, I don't, I, I hate even referring to it like this, but take a political risk. It's not a political risk. It should just be like, you know, to, to be, uh, politically, uh, coherent and legible. <laughs> you have to be politically legible in order to inspire people. And I mean, I think that that's what is happening um, in in the conservative world in the last decade. They figured out that, you know, they don't have to hide behind uh, trying to, to suck and blow at the same time. They just need to focus on specific culture wars and say things that people won't say because people um, for, for years people wouldn't say people are quite um, happy to say them these days um, but to focus on those things because it it will in, it will inspire people um, because it's about how people feel about themselves now I know that you know and many of the people who are listening know that there have been a, a lot of conversations on the left about the things that we're frustrated about the things that we um, are are unhappy with not seeing in the political sphere, whether that be through um, big P politics like elections or in organizing. And quite frankly, those conversations have to move from um, behind the scenes to like, you know, in the public square in order to have us uh, be able to be inspired uh, to do the sort of work that needs to be done 
to crack through the success of, of this shrewd conservative organizing because I, my God, we have a gap. We have a gap um, in, in that there are people who are, uh, who feel disenfranchised, who, who are unhappy with uh, the way that um, their life has been impacted by policies and are looking for someone to inspire them. And, it, and it, you know, you have some excitement over here and sucking and blowing over there. Like we have to fill that gap so that uh, those people who are unhappy um, can can have something to vote for or something to organize for that actually speaks to what how they're what is going to be impacted in their lives, but is also inspiring. One of the things that I think we absolutely have to touch on is something that you reported on this week, which is the job losses in the energy sector um, <laughs> that happened right <laughs> after, right after the election. <laughs> and, you know, if you are reporting on this, you know, the, the Suncor job losses, I think it was at 1,500 jobs, 2,000, yeah. some, somewhere in that 1500. range, 1,500 jobs that were layoffs right after the election in the oil sector. Like this is going to happen, right? Like it, it is inevitable that there is going to be um, uh, layoffs and job losses in the in the oil sector. It's like it's it's going to happen, right? So it's either you plan for it or you pretend it's not happening, right? Um, but to not discuss it in relation to the election is is kind of ridiculous. It's like exactly this sort of thing that if you are organizing on the left, this should be what we're talking about broadly um, and making sure that the media is talking about because they're not going to make that connection on their own. Like we, we have to make the, that connection for them. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing that we we need to make sure that we're on top of. Well, for sure, because on that situation, I mean, it, it got the treatment and I mean, OK, it didn't do a full media dive. So if someone has another article that I may have missed, feel free to send it to me. But it got the same treatment as any other job announcement, job loss announcement. And there's always job loss announcements and, and gain announcements. It was just like, OK, Suncor's announced this and here's what the president and CEO is saying. And, you know, this is why or whatever. And and it's like. First of all, Notley would have worn that in a way that Daniel Smith is obviously not having to wear it, which is interesting. But also, it seems like it's being set up, I don't I don't think consciously by the journalists, but I think that this is exactly what the conservatives would do, is Suncor is saying that they're trying to make up a, an operating loss of, of, or sorry, I shouldn't say loss, they're still making a lot of money and they haven't actually reduced how much money they're making. Their, their profits have risen, I think, 76% in the last quarter or the final quarter of 2022, which is the last uh, reporting results. But they're trying to make up $400 million. And it just seems very obvious that if you're looking at what's happening with Volkswagen and Stellantis and you've got a government like Daniel Smith, they're just probably going to hand the money over to them, right, to save the jobs. And, I, you know, not that, you know, maybe, maybe it's actually they're, they're just using it as an excuse to save money, but they're actually trying to restructure so they won't, Suncor won't be seeking $400 million from, from the government. But I bet you they will. I bet you that's the kind of conversations that are happening right now. And this is the kind of thing that, um, that I think does help to illustrate just how perverted our priorities are in 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 mainstream society and why people search so hard for scapegoats and 
like, let's tie this also back to an, an issue that made big play during the election in Alberta, but is also a big issue all over Canada, which is the anti-trans panic. And there's more analysis and focus on the anti-trans panic in and of itself, not making the connection that this is a way to hide these sticky issues from the conservatives' perspective, like, oh, yeah, actually, we are going to do corporate welfare. Oh, actually, yes, Suncor is going to still cut all these jobs, and they still actually will do energy transition. They just won't do it on our terms because we refuse to engage with them. But let's actually really focus on demonizing and making uh, life horrible for trans people. And this is something that is not specific to Alberta. It is it is happening everywhere. You know, again, it just was in New Brunswick, so shout out to the activists in New Brunswick who are doing what they can to fight their own government on this stuff. And, and I mean, it's a, it's a massive fight and it's hard. But, but you know, these when we talk about these issues in isolation, it doesn't become obvious that what is happening is that the, the far right has learned how to use these issues to hide all of the things that 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 would actually make them less popular with their base. And again, we're not very good at making those connections. We're very good at calling them out. We're very good at calling for support, or maybe we're good at showing up at support rallies. And I mean, that's all important. I'm not saying that we should take away from that and do something else. But we are very bad at making those systemic connections, that this anti-trans panic is not coming out of nowhere. It has a direct connection to the fact that that the economy is shrinking, that politicians uh, are, are having a harder time justifying really terrible public policies that are going to happen no matter what, because they have to enrich the corporate class. They have to re-entrench class in this, in this country, but they don't want to have to explain it. They don't want to have to explain uh, Stellantis or, or Volkswagen. And instead, Justin Trudeau is much happier to say, uh, actually, we are LGBTQ allies or actually we stand with trans siblings uh, in their struggle. And then, of course, the Daniel Smiths of the world are much happier to be like, oh, we're not going to say anything, but we're going to allow our members to say the most horrifying things. And, and so like that is the gap. That is that is this interesting gap. And when you get down to talking to like a person about politics, an average person about politics, it's actually not hard to undo all of the bad culture stuff uh, very quickly, actually, because it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and the, uh, the, 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 the pressures and, and, and issues facing us are so big and so repugnant for a lot of people that, you know, it's very easy to get on the same page with the vast majority of people. But that takes organizing. Yeah, it's like it's the literal difference between um, someone like uh, coming to you and saying like, uh, you know, who, who like what do you like? What are your struggles? What are your struggles? What would like change your life for the better? And uh, the question that the conservatives are asking, which is literally, who do you want to be? Who are you? Um, and that 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 question of like who you are and what you um, personally support, like what what makes you you is I think the conservatives have have realized is a is a far more useful way for them to organize because their policies are so dangerous. And it's not just conservatives either. Like, yes, this culture war stuff like, oh, my goodness, the, the federal government implementing a day against gun violence. Like, that's the same thing. It is the exact same playbook. It is far less effective, but they're not doing anything there um, to, to stop 
gun violence. They're not doing anything there to, to shift any policies that would make a difference um, in the lives of people who are ex- experiencing violence. But they are calling out to people and saying, who are you? Are you a person that supports guns? Or are you a, su- a person that supports not guns, <laughs> that supports, um, you know, uh, gun control? And they're putting, they're making a flashpoint, putting a day to it that you can support or not support. And then people have a discussion, um, a cultural discussion about how we feel about guns. And that cultural discussion is really about who we are in the world, like how, who I want to be. Um, and it has nothing to do with the actual politics and policies. And so if you vote on, on that accord, it, it makes literally no difference as to, to what is going to happen with respect to uh, gun violence or violence or, you know, uh, any s- sort of measure of how people are harmed or not. Uh, but it, it's, it's just a way to ask you, who are you? And if you're this person, well, then you should vote for me. Why? Who the fuck cares? <laughs> right? Like, th- we should not allow them to play on that playing field. And at the same time, like, it, it, it's very important to, for us to continue to organize, um, to, to cut through the culture bullshit, because they're only able to do this because of rampant transphobia uh, existing in, in, in our culture, uh, because of misogyny existing in our culture, abortion and choice being um, what was previously most uh, talked about in the last uh, you know, few years as the culture war discussion, um, and, and now fully moving into um, the trans panic or whatever it's being called. Uh, but we we can't we we need to to fight those those uh, transphobia misogyny um, anti black racism um, and the way that it exists. But we we also need to cut through it be those things being used to uh, shroud what's happening to people with respect to policy. We have to to cut through that shroud and not allow politicians to hide behind um, those. Uh, oppressions and discriminations in order to win their campaigns. And that is what they are doing. And we like, if we don't have a full understanding of that, we miss um, the fact that we need to, 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 to fight on multiple levels in order to have the impact that we need to have. So people like Danielle Smith don't get in and implement these policies that are really harmful. Mm-hmm. And to not get distracted by the aesthetics of it all, you know, like Daniel Smith is is wackadoodle. There's no question about that. Like <laughs> she she totally is. But I think a lot about this. I don't know, Sandy, if you know this, but um, do you remember remember during the pandemic how like no one would like interview me for my work on COVID? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah. Do you know the first person was though who interviewed me? Uh, was it someone like on the extreme right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was on a mainstream radio station. Yeah, that makes sense. It wasn't, sorry, it wasn't just someone though. It was Danielle Smith. Whoa, <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, it was Danielle Smith. And it, I, I wouldn't go on a far right radio show um, that was not on mainstream radio. Um, but with her, I mean, she has a, a mainstream audience. So it's like, yeah, absolutely. And she was very concerned with the data. She didn't challenge me at all. It was all very much like governments aren't doing enough or whatever. Even then, she knew. <laughs> she knew what would probably get people riled up. And it didn't matter if it was incoherent with later on what she would say about COVID. 
because it's about understanding what people are worried about, like fundamentally worried about. Like, I don't know if you saw the news. I mentioned on the Daily News uh, a couple of weeks ago, but like Canada's national debt that we all owe, not the Canadian debt, but what we all owe, Canadians, we owe 107% of Canada's GDP. Oh, yeah, I did. I did. I did hear your reporting on this. Yeah. It, that should should have been or should be something that every progressive group in Canada turns into the explanation for why why they're fighting what they're fighting, right? Like like massive amounts of debt is an incredible population control tool. It's way better population control tool than vaccines or microchips. It's a way better population control tool than even a lot of the laws that try to put a chill into organizing because you don't need the coercive power of the state to put a chill into organizing when someone literally just can't go out to a completely not threatening event because they have too much debt because they are overwhelmed with the responsibilities of servicing their debt and this has put like this has put people in into chains in a way that i don't think that we really uh have 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 rendered visible i mean we all understand why it's bad but i don't think that we've managed to make the jump between okay we understand it's bad and then this is the literal impact that this has on the world and if we were the right wing we would have been using this all over the place, talking about conspiracy, the conspiracy of indebting you so that you don't have the ability to do X, Y, or Z. We would be all over this. I have not seen anything of people trying to use that in, in the context of the issues around which they're organizing. It's really fascinating. I don't want to get too down on this because as I'm saying, I've seen, I've seen, or haven't seen, I haven't seen, I haven't seen. I'm thinking of the folks in uh, North Toronto, Northwest Toronto, who have gone on rent strike, who have understood the material conditions, who are organized the York Southwestern Tenants Union, and who are on mm-hmm. rent strike against a company that continues to try and seek rental increases that far surpass what is legally allowed. It's like that, that is what you do. That is, you understand the material conditions, the conditions that people are are directly experiencing you cut through the bullshit of the culture wars regardless of what kind of bullshit that is and you speak to people where they are at and i think that things like income inequality and the and the and the debt crisis and the housing crisis like these are things that touches everybody every single person uh some of the some of the people it touches in a positive way but they're in the vast minority we have the points of contact to do all of the things that we're talking about and so then the question is who and where and why is no one doing this or why isn't there enough being done or is it just that everybody's so afraid and so tired and so burnt out that we just don't have the energy and the bodies to be able to do this? And I, I think that, of course, most people would most people on the left would say, well, it's it's, it's that that's where we're at. Yeah. And but I also think that like the approach is like that we have is like wrong. Um, um, we uh, that's a very broad we like I'm talking about media. I'm talking about uh, people on the ground, whatever. It's like we just like have to stop engaging with bullshit. It's like when when someone on the, the right, like in an election is like, and, you know, I'm going to make sure that there will not be a drag queens reading books it's like should just be like okay great we understand that you're a bad person but can we get back to like the politics like that should literally be the response there shouldn't be an ability to engage in that discussion 
as part of, uh, of, of some sort of electoral campaign. Like I fine, like, let me know how you're a bad person. Like, that's totally great. But like, let's not continue, um, to engage on that piece because it, 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 it is obviously being used as a mask for something else. And every single minute that is spent allowing them to make use of this, this culture war stuff is, is, is a minute that we're losing to talk about the way that these politics are actually impacting people's lives. And it also allows them to continue to campaign on these campaigns of hate. The minutes, the hours that we allow them to continue to talk about that stuff, that is them fomenting more hate on the ground. So stop allowing that to happen. And at the same time, I think that perhaps, Nora, that we've lost some skill on the left. Um, before we started the show, I mean, you were talking about a great experience of, um, of a, a conference that you had been to recently where, where people just went out into the community and started asking, talking to people directly about what they needed. And it's like, you know, are people doing that anymore? Do people have the skill of just doing like streeting campaigning like just going up to people and asking them talking to to average people about what's going on in their lives i think that 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 skill that that loss of skill of like how easy it is and how necessary it is to like build community in that way to like just continue to speak to people that you just don't know and trust that that is that is an okay thing for us to do I I wonder if I'm like um, just like extrapolating in a way, but I, I kind of feel like that skill has been lost. I feel like uh, people aren't doing that as much as we used to. I feel like it's not that people aren't doing it as much as, as they used to, but it has become coded as being the thing that you do for one particular kind of organizing only. And that's elections. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Like I think that politicians, of course, they have to go to door door to door because that's their lifeblood, and they have to know what's going on in their communities, and that's the best way to do it. I think that canvassing is almost exclusively related to getting someone elected, and that is a crying shame. Because when we so we 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 had this day long uh, conference last week. Uh, I mean, a couple day conference, but we had one day long session on communicating privatization. And one of the interesting things that delegates kind of came to the understanding was that maybe people don't actually even know what that word means. And we're using it as a shorthand to not actually have to explain it and to not actually have to get into the details because sometimes the details are contradictory. Sometimes the details are difficult. And, and I was thinking as people were kind of like giving us ideas and feedback they, they, and I sent them out into the streets of St. John. I was like, talk to many, as many people as you can in the next hour about privatization. And the responses were so interesting and, and made me think about the difference between like if I go back to my student movement days, like Sandy, imagine instead of saying reduce tuition fees, we said stop privatization. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is what which is what higher tuition yeah. fees are, which is privatizing the yeah. system. Right. And so, you know, again, again, you have to be rooted in what what people are thinking about and talk to them on the terms that they engage with and, and, and that 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 they that they that they understand that that they see themselves reflected in that they in, in words that they use every day. And we've totally lost that. And you really do. 
lose the connection between where someone's at and and your own rhetoric when you're not going out and talking to totally random people about stuff or if you're not in unfriendly spaces and trying to talk about issues with so-called unfriendly people uh, to your cause we're so bad at that on the left and frankly there's no excuse for it it's so easy it's so easy to talk to someone who you disagree with, but you have to be in a situation where you're even able to have that conversation. Yeah. And I think, um, there, there can't, there, we have to also understand how, uh, work has evolved in our contemporary moment to be like this thing that you're just doing all the time. Like you, you might have your regular job and then you have your side gig and your hustle and whatever has impacted this, this entire situation as well. Because of course, um, previous to this world where we've just been expected to be working all the time, you know, you would be going to community centers, perhaps like, houses of worship, whatever, um, and making connections with people in a way that that complements the way that we need to organize. And right now, you know, like you, you see all of this uh, news and uh, discussion about how loneliness is a, is a huge problem and how uh, people are feeling more and more disconnected from one another. Like that is part of the impact um, of how work has evolved and it, it does impact our ability to uh, to organize effectively. So we have to understand that too. And it also like in understanding that um, for people on the left, it should be something that we are organizing for is, you know, making sure that we, we stop the continued erosion of the parameters around work that we uh, are actually campaigning and demanding more leisure time in our lives and that we understand that all of that is connected to our ability to have an impact on uh, on on politics, big P and small P, and how it impacts our lives. 